0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Yay! Oh, stop, stop. See, you're loved, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, of all the sermons, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. You're not sure, uh, it's uh, That's on green. Um all the sermons in Jonah that I get to I get to share with you guys um, this will be the one where uh if if there are any of them this will be the one where you're like mm, yeah he should have taken a year in jonah um, <laughs> uh, so maybe my my um my effort and sweat to try to cram this into four weeks might show more in this one than than any of the others. So don't be all that impressed yet. Um, also, um, I'm pretty sure Joe's a better pastor than I am. So you guys are, are um, hopefully starting to miss him and are being um, are, are starting to get eager to to have your pastor back with you. Although I. I commend you and um, and thankful for you that you would want to give uh, Pastor Joe this break. And so, I'm um, delighted to be with you again. You'll notice my whole crew is not able to be with me today. Uh, sadly, my, um, my wife, Tristan, her grandfather passed away on Wednesday. And so, we've been enjoying time with family uh, in Iowa this week and... Um, and that's where they are. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm leaving here as soon as I um, am free uh, to race back for a memorial gathering in Holstein, Iowa City Park uh, to be with them. And so that's where we're there at today. I, I tell you that for two reasons. First, of course, to be in prayer for Tristan as they're grieving the loss of uh, her grandpa. Uh, but I tell you also so that you would know you didn't scare her away. Uh, we had a really good time last week. We're thankful to be with you. Um, They're just with families. We felt like that was better and easier on everybody. So, again, thank you. Uh, And know that uh, our family is feeling blessed uh, to be ministering among you uh, on the weekends. Okay, Uh, we're going to get into Jonah. Jonah. Uh, chapter 2. Now, uh, I know a couple of us maybe weren't able to be here uh, last week, and even if, even if you were, it's been a whole week. And so let me recap uh, the big idea uh, from Jonah chapter 1 last week. Uh, the big idea was this that though we are sinful down to the core, sinful in a way that we cannot touch or change, God does not fail to receive the honor and praise He deserves from sinners like us. Uh, In other words, um, those whom God loves cannot uh, outrun God. Uh, God is always going to show up in the lives that He loves, and He's going to work so powerfully, and He's going to work so incredibly that we can't help but, though we might might run from Him, uh, we cannot help but love Him and worship Him for how He shows up in our lives. And how He pursues and shows us His love and grace. And of course, the most important way we talked about God showing up. Like in Jonah, God shows up in the storm, right? And he, and he sends Jonah off His course. But we talked about last week how the most important and most impressive way that God has shown up in our lives is by sending Jesus to die for our sins. And, and that, that ultimately, we, we are to look as Christians at the cross and just be impressed with God for what He has done for us and worship Him for it. So those are the lessons we took from Jonah last week, running from God and and seeing God pursue him and call Jonah uh, back to himself. And that brings us to chapter 2. So let's read it together. Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Father, You are our Lord and God. And together we confess that Your grace and Your love is amazing and transforming. And we confess also that we can be sometimes so unamazed and untouched and disinterested. We confess together, Lord, that sometimes we are more interested in what we're going to have for lunch than we are in what You have to say to us and what You have done for us in Your Word and and through Jesus. We confess together that as we come to Your Word, we are people needy, We need You to open our eyes, to see what we need to see. We need You to soften our hearts, to respond to what You're telling us. We need Your Spirit to awaken our desires in the right direction. We want to desire the right things this morning. We might be coming into this room with all kinds of things that are threatening to take a chunk of our heart and and try to commit it to something other than what's going on right now. Uh, the psalmist says uh, that um, he needs you to unite his heart to fear your name. And that's that's what we're asking for. We have we have possibly divided hearts in here. Like within us, our hearts are fractured, and there's a there's a piece of it that's that's yearning for. Lunch. There's a part of it that's, that's yearning for, to return to some sin. There's a, there's a part that's, that's full of anxiety about church budgets. It's anxiety about uh, work on Monday. Anxiety about some relational conflict that's, that's just waiting for us as soon as we get home. And, and, and Lord, these are, these are the reasons we need you to unite our hearts to fear your name. That we would just be here and receive your word and that you would help us to receive it. Be honored, we ask, Lord. Forgive us for our sin. Thank you for taking it away through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want us to think uh, at first here for just a second on what you think about when you hear the word grace. Like, what is the image in your mind when you hear the word grace? What is grace? Grace. Um, grace can be one of those words, especially as Christians, that we talk about so much and we use so much that we kind of forget what it means. right? Like, like, like grace, is what, um, grace is what you name cute little baby girls, right? You stick a bow in there, a little patch of hair, and, and you, say, you name them grace. Uh, is, grace is what dancers have, right? Like she danced with grace. Or like figure skaters, right? The judges, oh, they're such, you know, such graceful moves on the ice. I don't watch figure skating, by the way, but just get that out of the way, right? Um, like, like, and I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining about people naming cute little girls Grace. Grace is a wonderful name for a little girl, but I, I, I'm just getting at the idea that I think a, a lot of times we we attach. Like the idea of beauty to this concept of grace. We, we we hear grace and we think beauty. We think pretty. We think gentle. And we talk about it as so much as Christians. We have songs about how amazing it is, right? And it becomes so ordinary to us that we might not always know what we're talking about when we talk about grace. And I would suggest to you that Jonah 2 is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of God's grace. And it's it's not a cute little girl in a bow. It's not a figure skater. In this story, God's grace, the picture of God's grace, is the digestive system of a sea monster. It's not the image that you'd expect. Now, you won't find the word grace in this chapter, but this picture, this chapter is a picture of God's grace. And careful students of God's word for years have been saying that, that grace is this that grace is God's unmerited favor. God God's grace is His unmerited favor. It's when when He loves you and when He rescues you, when what you actually deserve is not to be loved, it's to be hated and punished instead. As sinners, we deserve wrath, and so grace is when we get the love of God that we don't deserve. And this is a truth that's all over Jonah chapter 2. God loves who He loves and He shows them His grace, however, messy, tough, and wild that grace is. And He shows us that grace so that we would be changed forever. This is what Jonah's prayer teaches us. And that's what chapter 2 is. It's It's a prayer. It's a prayer that shows us God's grace comes to us often in messy, unexpected packages, but it works to transform us and change us. For eternity. So that's really the the main point this morning. That's that's the only point this morning. That's the big idea of this passage, this prayer, is about how tough, messy, wild grace transforms us. Now let me clarify something too here. When I when I say that God's grace is tough and it's messy and it's it's wild, I I, I don't I don't mean that um, that God, is when he's, when he's tough to us in His grace, I don't mean that He's mean. I don't mean that He's cruel by saying that His grace can be tough. When I, when I say that it's messy, I don't mean that it's disorderly. When I say that it's wild, I don't mean that God is out of control. What I mean, and what I think Jonah tells us, is that God's grace is not something we control. It's not something that we get to tell God, okay, here's how I'd like you to show me grace. I'd like you to do it this way. I'd like you to do it this day and this time. It's not something we control. Because it's not something we control, it often messes up our purposes. It messes up our plans. It doesn't really have much respect for our preferences. So I want to break this this main idea down into, into two parts. First, I want to dwell on the idea that God's grace is wild, messy, and tough because I kind of want to undo this idea that, that grace is just this flowery, beautiful hmm, thing that, that is really like, like a Hallmark you know, Lifetime television movie, right? It's tough. And, and I want us to, you know, I want us, if we've got those ideas of grace, just kind of do away with those for a little bit and, and just start to get comfortable with the idea that God's grace can be tough on us. It doesn't, doesn't make God mean, sometimes tough grace is what we, what we need. So I want to talk about that first, wild, messy, tough grace of God, and then transition to how it transforms us and uh, finish up with some specific application for our daily lives. So first off, God's messy, wild, tough grace. When we left Jonah in chapter 1, he had just been hurled into the sea. God had sent this storm to stop Jonah uh, from running away, and it endangers the ship that he's on and the sailors on it. And so he, he confesses and, and, and volunteers to be tossed into the sea so that the storm would stop. So Jonah, at this point, is drowning in the sea all alone. Those are the images we get as Jonah prays and describes his situation. And this is a picture for us, picture for Jonah, of what sinners like us deserve. That's how Jonah's own prayer tells us to interpret his time bobbing about in the waves, drowning in the sea. Jonah himself tells us that the sea is a picture of what he deserves for fleeing from God, for running away from God. Jonah confesses that, I deserve this, I deserve uh, darkness and and separation from God's goodness. calls his time in the sea like being in the belly of Sheol. That's, that's verse 2. Uh, Sheol is the, uh, is the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. It's, it's not the name of the fish, right? Like he didn't have that kind of relationship with the fish, um, naming it Sheol or anything like that. Uh, this is the Hebrew realm of the dead. And he says, my time in the ocean It was like being in the realm of the dead. In verse 6, he says, I was headed for the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He calls it a pit. And and this is interesting. In verse 4, he describes, I think, maybe the root of his problem, like the the most serious part of uh, his entire predicament. He says in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. And to me that's interesting, and to me that's striking, because back in chapter 1, right, he thought that's what he wanted. I mean, it's emphatic and and, 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 repeated in in chapter 1, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's trying to get away from God. And and now in verse 4 he's praying, I'm driven away from your sight, and oh my goodness, I don't like it. It's like Jonah is saying, I thought I wanted to be out of your sight, I thought I wanted to be away from you, but now here I am, and I feel all alone, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's like death, and it's horrible. Now, just to be clear, um, Jonah's sin didn't feel that way at first, did it? Sin doesn't often feel that way at first. At first, For Jonah, it felt like a relief to run from God. Jonah was so relieved to have run from God in chapter 1 that he was able to sleep through a typhoon. That's how relieved he was. He was sleeping through a typhoon. Just because we feel comfortable with our sin right now doesn't mean that misery is very shortly ahead of us. This is what Jonah realizes in the sea. And we are very much like Jonah, aren't we? Like, we, we think we know what we want, but we certainly learn that what we want is maybe foolish, dark, wrong, and leads to our destruction. Uh, it's like that old joke about the man falling from the skyscraper. I don't know if you have heard that, but there's this old joke about the man falling from the skyscraper, and the joke is, you know, what did he say? Or what did, what did he shout in every window on the way down? In every window on the way down, the man falling from the skyscraper shouts, Hey, I'm still doing okay. (laughs) Still all right. I'm still good. And he was. He's not wrong. He's perfectly healthy. And so he shouts in every window on the way down. And then he hits the ground. And Millard Erickson, he uses this illustration in one of his books, and he says, You know, sooner or later the reality of your situation is gonna catch up to your experience. You might be okay as you fall past every window, but sooner or later you're going to hit the ground and it won't be okay. Reality will catch up with your experience. Sin feels good and liberating at first, but eventually it it catches up to you, gets you. Like, Like God is the best person in existence to have fellowship with. And if you run from Him, it will catch up to you and it will be hell. It will be a cold, dark, endless, lonely drowning. So Jonah gets an image of that loneliness and that wrath and that drowning in the sea. But then he turns to the fish and he gives us an image of God's grace. So just to be clear, when, God, or when Jonah talks about wrath and darkness and loneliness and the belly of Shell, he's talking about the water. He's talking about drowning in the sea. And when he gets to grace and when he gets to deliverance, it's there that he's talking about the fish. The smelly, goopy, dark insides of this giant sea creature was Jonah's rescue. It was God's grace. That's how Jonah looks at it. Notice what he prays here is prayed from inside the fish. Verse 1 Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying. Now, and I'm pointing this out I'm pointing out that the prayer was prayed in the guts of the fish because that's not naturally how I would read it. Like like cuz this prayer is about him being delivered. This prayer is about him being rescued. This prayer is about God hearing his cries for help and helping him. But he's not out of the fish yet. He hasn't been hurled up on the beach yet. I think I would have waited till I was on the beach. Right? Like like for me the beach would be the deliverance. The beach would be the rescue. The beach would be the help. Jonah says, "Nope. The fish was the help." Fish was the Deliverance, because it gave Jonah three days in the dark to face his sin and return to the God who had rescued him. You talk about messy grace. You talk about tough grace. There it is, in the guts of a giant fish. It's wild, but that's what transforms us and that's what brings us back to God. It's what brings us to the end of ourselves. If you're a Christian, you know that God's grace rarely ever comes to you in the packages that you would have ever given yourself. It shows up in our, in our lives uh, never in the kind of stories we would write for ourselves. God's grace comes to us in illness. and It comes to us in pain. It comes to us when we're brought to our utter limit. I grew up believing that my dad... Um, sorry, let me fix this for good. It keeps trying to creep over. Here we go. Now I grew up believing that my dad loved whiskey more than me. Now I, I love my dad. And before he died, uh, we were able to forgive each other and, and be at peace. And that's God's deal, and um, I'm so thankful that um, Dad's time on Earth ended well. Um. But the sad truth of my upbringing is that I grew up believing that dad loved Jack Daniels more than me it just seemed like Jack Daniels always won no matter how much it hurt our family that's who he'd always go back to but my dad had this season of life where he he tried to quit drinking and because he tried to quit drinking he, he went to AA and in and, and AA he met these guys uh, who went to the Baptist church in town <clears throat> and Um, now for years my mom had been trying to get him to come to church and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't go and then he meets these guys in AA and he says you know these guys have kind of helped me and and I like them, I like spending time with them tell you what, I'll go to church if we go to their church and so we switched churches now now Sadly, Dad's sobriety didn't last. Mom and Dad's marriage didn't even last. And the next few years ahead of us were going to be the most painful that we probably ever experienced. But just as, about, just as it was about to get as dark as it could possibly get, God was bringing us into a church that was going to care for us through it. So because my dad was an alcoholic, he went to AA for a little bit. And because he went to AA, he met these men that convinced him to come to church. And because we switched churches, I met the most influential adult Christian men of virtually my entire life. Men who treated me like a son. Men who gave me good reason to be confident and proud of my faith. Men who helped me love Jesus more. Men who were there for me when my dad couldn't be. And all of that grace came to me in the package of my dad's alcoholism. I I would not have had those experiences of God's grace if my dad had not been the way he was. That's the package, that's the story of how God's grace got to me. His grace messed up my cozy, tidy little life, but just like real grace, it transformed my life. And that's the way God's grace is. So let's talk about how that works. God's grace is this wild, untamable, uncontrollable thing that, that He decides on and He brings to us in whatever package He sees fit, but it transforms us for the better. It transforms us for eternity. It transforms our hearts. Now, how does this work? Here, here it is in a nutshell. And more than, um, more than any other point here, um, you're going to see how many more sermons Jonah deserves um, because really like, you're going to see... I'm going to talk about repentance a little bit here. And you're going to see, oh, this whole thing could have been about repentance. Like we could have just, this, everything, everything I just talked about could all just be introduction and, and this would be the, the main thing. But, but, he, but here it is. How does this work? How does, how does the tough grace get at us? How does the tough grace transform us? It does it this way. It produces repentance. It produces repentance. Now what is that, right? Like repentance, that's a churchy word. It's another one of those words we maybe use a lot. So what does it mean? What is repentance? Well, Jonah's prayer shows us that repentance is three things. Repentance is... I'm going to give them all three to you, and then we'll talk about them in in turn. Repentance is three things. Repentance is, one, desperation. Two, repentance is sincerity. And three, repentance is a gift. Desperation, sincerity, gift. That's what repentance is. Now, here's what I mean. Let's talk about desperation first. Repentance is desperation. Desperation being sorry, but, but, but here's the thing. It's not being sorry about your circumstances. It's not simply being sorry about what you did. It's being sorry that you've broken your fellowship with God. Uh, repentance is desperation. It's a desperation for God. Repentance is when you don't care so much about your circumstances as you do about being with God. Anybody can be sorry about doing bad things. Right? Being sorry because you want to be with God is something else entirely. Notice how this comes up through Jonah's prayer. Okay, Again, he's praying before he's out of the fish guts. Right? He's praying before he's on the beach. This is what he says, verse 4. I'm driven away from your sight, but... I shall again look upon your holy temple. What's Jonah looking forward to? Jonah's looking forward to being with God's people where God shows up that he may be worshipped. His hope is that he'd be able to return and worship God with God's people. His, his hope is focused on God. He doesn't, he doesn't even ask to get out of the guts of the fish. Like, like to me, like that would be at the top of my you know, request list or at least you will slide it in there at the end. He doesn't do that. Verse 7, I remembered the Lord. So in his suffering, he's not remembering his cozy existence as a famous and successful prophet. I'm just remembering the Lord. He's not dreaming about the good old days. He's not praying that, oh, if, if only things were like they used to be, That's not what he's remembering. He's remembering the Lord, it says in verse 7. Verse 9. It says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I I, I want to give whatever it takes to be in your presence and and be right with you. This is a man that wants his God. He's desperate for God. I'm sure he hoped to get out of the fish's belly, but he doesn't pray to get out of the fish's belly. He prays as if he's already been rescued. As if the real rescue has already taken place. And I think he prays that way because his heart is returning to the right place. All he wants is his God. You know, we have the tendency, when we're sorry for our sin, we, we have a tendency to be sorry more about what our sin cost us than sorry for the sin itself. Like, we're, we're, we're sorry for our sin because we, we realize we've done something wrong. And it's going to cost us something we don't want to lose. We realize that perhaps what we've done is going to cost us our reputation, or it's going to cost us some freedom, or it's going to cost us some money. And so we're sorry, and we're vocally sorry, and we're really sorry because we hope that maybe being really sorry is going to help us keep whatever we're about to lose. Maybe if we're really sorry, I won't lose the money that this sin is costing me, or the reputation that this sin is costing me, or the freedom this sin is. Costing me. So sometimes, we're frankly, we're just sorry because we're selfish and embarrassed. But that's not repentance. That's not really being sorry. Someone who repents is sorry for their sin because it's cut them off from God. They're sorry because they've endangered a relationship with the most special person in existence. And that's what Jonah seems to be sorry about. So repentance is desperation. It's desperation for God. Second, Jonah's prayer shows us also that repentance is sincere. And I, and I want to be careful here, because I don't want to limit the idea of sincerity to our feelings. Like, I think sincerity oftentimes is, is tested less by how we feel and more by what we do, like our, our actions. In other words, I think sincere repentance, you could say, is like a, is, is like a 180 turn. It's a decision to turn from your sin Trace your steps back from where you came. Think about how this is kind of what Jonah is doing. Jonah, I think, illustrates the kind of a, a 180 turn back to God. So what has Jonah done? Think about Jonah's sin. What's his sin? He has disobeyed the word of the Lord, and he's tried to flee the presence of the Lord. Really, if we were to, if we were to get really detailed about Jonah's sin, that's, that's what it is. It's disobeyed the word of the Lord, tried to flee the presence of the Lord. So, what does Jonah do? What does Jonah do as he sincerely repents? Well, he returns to the presence of the Lord in prayer. And this is a prayer that is very much influenced by the word of the Lord. Okay, so for for disobeying the Lord, the, the Lord's Word, and for fleeing from His presence, Jonah's repentance looks like returning to the Lord's presence in prayer and submitting even the language of that prayer to the Word of God. This prayer that Jonah prays could easily be mistaken for one of the Psalms. There are about 15 times in Jonah's prayer where it sounds like he's quoting Psalm 88. Like if, if you wanted an interesting little homework assignment, you could take a psalm like, I think, Psalm 30 and, and definitely Psalm 88 and, and lay it out next to Jonah 2 and you'd see a lot of similarities. You'd start to wonder if maybe Jonah has Psalm 88 memorized and, and is using the language of Psalm 88 to shape his prayer. And I'm just, I'm just pointing this out because, because as, as Jonah is repenting here, he's not only returning to the Lord's presence in prayer, this prayer has been submitted to, to, to God's own language, right? To, to, to the Word of God itself. Jonah is letting God's Word shape how he prays and what he prays. So Jonah is pulling a 180 here. He's returning to God's presence in a word-saturated, sincere prayer. That's repentance. He's desperate for God, and so he's turning away from where he's run. He's coming back to God's presence, both in prayer and in the Word. So what is that maybe going to look like for us today? You know, Martin Luther used to say, um, well, actually, I think it was the first of his 95 theses. Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance. Like, like, like every day of the Christian life is a turning from the things that endanger our fellowship with God, and so what's that look like for you today? Uh, I don't I don't know what's going on in all of your lives, but let me just share with you a bit of mine. One thing I notice a lot of times in my own language is is that uh, I will talk about um, you know the, the the sins that seem to be consistently coming up again and again in my lives, and, and the la- in my life, and the language I tend to use about those is is my struggle with them. Like, I'm, you know, I'm struggling with this thing. I'm struggling with anger. And of course, there are going to be things in our lives. Like, we're going to have seasons of our lives where we struggle for a long time with particular sins. But here's how I think talking about sin as a struggle gets me in trouble sometimes. I think sometimes I talk about um, my sin as if it's a struggle because I kind of secretly want to give, my presi- my, give myself permission not to, not to kill it. Yeah, I'm struggling with that. Okay, you know what? Do you know that because Jesus died and and by His grace transformed our lives, we we don't have to struggle forever with sin. There are sins we can put to death. We can kill it. I think it was John Owen that said, um, before sin kills you, get to killing sin. Sin isn't meant simply to be struggled with. It's meant to be killed. It's meant to be turned away from and and walked away from. You and I are loved and chosen by God to walk in the opposite direction of sin. We're to put sin in the rear view mirror and, and floor it. One of the things with my dad that I learned later on in life is that I was no innocent bystander. Like, when our relationship was rough, it wasn't just because dad was an alcoholic. Many times, his sin was something I used as an excuse to sin against him. Many times, his sin was something I would use it as an excuse to take shelter in something else so like his sin would hurt me and so what I would do with that was, was to, 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 to deal with the hurt and to deal with the pain of how his sin affected me is I would run somewhere other than God to feel better and a lot of times that shelter for me was just being smarter than everybody else around me knowing more I would <laughs> I didn't plan on mentioning this I would memorize trivial, trivial pursuit cards Some people read the newspaper in the bathroom. I would memorize trivial pursuit cards. I wanted to know more than everyone. Because somehow I was deceived into thinking sinfully that if I knew more than everybody else, if I was smarter than everybody else around me, I I couldn't get hurt anymore. It's a false refuge. That's silly, and so, so for me, the 180 has been to recognize that that's a false refuge. To, to just say, you know what, I, being smarter than everybody else in order to feel—that's sin. And so we're going to put that in the rearview mirror, and we're going to hit the gas. Well, I'm going to tell myself that the most important thing in the world is not to feel like I know better than everybody else. And... That's thinking that you're not just supposed to struggle with. You're supposed to put it to death. You're supposed to stop. And so I would admonish you this morning you know what you struggle with, right? This is not a great mystery to you. Quit dinking around with your pet struggle, go back the way you came. Put it in the rearview mirror and hit the gas. Return to your God in prayer. Return to Him in His Word. Repentance is a sincere 180. And finally, repentance is a gift. Now, just so we don't mistake repentance as something that we do by pulling up our bootstraps and sweating a lot, we have to see repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God. Notice verse 9. The end note of Jonah's prayer is gratitude. He has a voice of thanksgiving. He's thankful. And he's thankful because, quote, Salvation belongs to the Lord. A lot of commentators think this is the whole point of the book. The whole point of the book is summed up right here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation isn't something that anyone takes from God. not something we can ever afford to buy from God it belongs to him and he gives it to whom he will you see if we're not careful you and I will slip into thinking about salvation like it's a transaction as if as if we give God repentance and then because we gave repentance he's obligated to save us no no that's not what it's like salvation belongs to the Lord we don't buy it with repentance. It's His, and He gives it. And that includes the grace to repent. God provides for us the grace. He provides for us the very heart to turn to Him in desperate, sincere repentance. And Jonah sums that up in verse 9 when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. This, this idea is so important for us to catch that Jonah describes his rescue, he describes his salvation as if he's being brought from death to life. Like, it's so important for us to see that salvation is a total work of God that that Jonah describes his own rescue and his own salvation as if he's been brought from death to life. Verse 2, It's out of the belly of Sheol that I'm being rescued, he says. Right? The realm of the dead. Verse 5, The waters closed in to take my life. Verse 6, my life was in the pit. Verse 7, my life was fainting away. Jonah is crying out in prayer to God as if to say, I was a dead man and the only hope of a dead man is a God that raises the dead. The image of salvation in the Bible is not that of God on the deck tossing out life preservers to those who are just tired of treading water. The biblical image of salvation is of a God who goes down to the depths of the bottom of the ocean and He rescues sinners from its icy clutches and breathes new life into them. That's the image that the Bible gives us of salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not ours to manufacture out of thin air. It is His to give this image of salvation is a gift. It's, it's all over the New Testament. It's all over the Bible. Think about the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, grace, faith... It comes to us as a gift from God. So on the last great day when we stand in God's presence we will thank Him and praise Him for what we did. We will say, I believed and I trusted you and I have you to thank for that. We should just get lost in this thought that on the last day we will praise and thank Him for what we did and believed. Repentance is a gift from God because in His grace He awakens us to life. He awakens us to turn. It's the fruit of a spiritual resurrection. And resurrection is the very heart of this passage. And we know it's at the heart of this passage. We know resurrection is at the heart of this passage because Jesus said so. You look with me in Matthew, uh, chapter 12. This is a remarkable conversation. Jesus' critics are pelting Him with... With questions, Not really questions, more like ambushes. I mean, they're trying to corner Jesus, uh, trying to attack Jesus, trying to embarrass Jesus in public. And this is a remarkable encounter with some of Jesus' critics. In Matthew 12, verse 38. Mm, we'll read to 41. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, these were the experts of the Old Testament law. So these are really snobby, hard-hearted, religious folks. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." This is a remarkable encounter. Uh, Jesus' critics come along and they say, You know, we want a miracle from you before we're going to believe what you say. And Jesus basically says, Okay, I'll give you a miracle. You get one. You get the greatest one. You remember Jonah? Remember Jonah? I'm going to top it. I'm going to spend three days, not in the belly of a fish, I'm going to spend three days dead in a tomb and come out alive though we would never have seen Jonah this way. Jesus comes along in Matthew 12, and He says basically this, Jonah's three days and three nights in that fish, it's like the three days I'm going to spend in the grave for sinners. So Jonah's return to the Lord here in chapter 2 is a picture of spiritual death being turned to life. And Jesus says here in Matthew 12, the best version of that story, the best version of death from life, is going to be my life, my death, my resurrection for sinners. Jonah is just a preview. And this is crucial because the story of Jesus hinted at all the way back here in Jonah answers a really important question for us. Perhaps you thought of it as you see how God has treated Jonah here, throwing him into the sea Perhaps you thought of it as you've reflected on your own suffering and thought to yourself, how could God allow me to go through that? You, like Preacher, you don't know what what, what I've been through and you're trying to tell me that some of what I've been through is God's grace, the proof of God's love to me? How dare you? I don't know if anybody's thinking that, but it'd be easy for me to think that if I was in your shoes. How could God allow me to go through that? Why does He let these things happen to me? Couldn't He have shown me His grace in some other way? Couldn't He have taught me with less pain? It's that question that's the reason we need to see Jesus' story in Jonah's. Because here's the answer here's why God is not cruel for giving us messy, wild, tough grace. God's tough grace is not cruel because. God knew, no, God decided from before the foundation of the world that it would be toughest on Him, that He would get the messiest, that He would get the dirtiest, that He would be treated the worst. But through that, He'd save the world. Through that, He'd save you. He decided from before the foundation of the world, that He would take on flesh, and He would live a life for us, He'd die the death that we would deserve, and He would top the miracles of the Old Testament by rising from the dead to give sinners like us hope, salvation, and life. And so, the grace of God might be showing up in your life right now in a tough way. but this world has been tougher on Jesus. And Jesus did that for you. He did that to save you and to purchase a new world where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more crying or mourning or pain, and that will all pass away. That's God's grace. It's a bloody cross, but it makes you new. It makes you clean. It covers sin. It saves the world. Let me leave you with two quick takeaways. And I want to give you two quick takeaways because this is all very dramatic. and, And even though God's grace can sometimes come to us in wild, tough, messy packages, the reality is also... Sometimes God's grace comes to us in very ordinary ways, in very unremarkable ways, and so I want to leave some application with you on two ordinary ways God's grace comes to us. I'm thinking of regular worship with other Christians and committing the Bible to memory. Okay, so first application. Worship regularly with those who've been transformed by God's grace here's why this is an application of Jonah too here's where I'm getting this from Jonah when he's transformed by God's grace that's happening in the ocean right that's happening in the guts of the fish it's just him and God all alone in the dark but he prays with the expectation of returning to a whole group of people that have been transformed by God's grace and worshipping with them you see in verse 4 I want to look again upon your holy temple. His expectation is that he'll get to go back to the temple, he'll get to worship with everyone else that's been touched by God's grace, where God's presence is manifested, where God shows up to bless His people. Okay, so your faith is your own. It's between you and, and God, but it's not meant to be experienced in isolation. One of God's graces to us is is to surround us with all the other people that have been touched by His grace. So there is great grace from God when we gather with each other. All those who have been touched by God's grace. And we worship this God of grace together. Uh, Don't don't make God put you inside the giant sea monster before you come to appreciate just the ordinary grace of gathering regularly with other believers to praise God. Second, Memorize some Bible verses. God's Word is a way that He shows us grace. God's Word is another way He shows us grace. And a takeaway from Jonah 2 is that it's really good for us to try to commit some of it to memory. Now, Jonah's prayer, I would suggest, is like a Bible sponge. If you were to squeeze Jonah's prayer, other Bible verses would leak out of it. And I'm getting this from the reality that Jonah didn't have any scrolls with him when he was inside the fish. If he did, he would not have been able to see them. He didn't have an app. Right? He didn't have Wi-Fi. He couldn't look up ESV.org. He had these things committed to memory. So consider the value of having God's Word so much a part of your memory that when the tough times come and the Bible's not in your lap and the app's not in your pocket, you still have the verses committed to heart. You still have those truths to to tell yourself. This comes in handy, trust me. So uh, early on in in, uh, my marriage to Tristan, um, we were living about 45 miles from where she worked. She was a uh, pediatric nurse and and she would work um, night shifts take a day off, work a day shift, uh, you know, and, and then uh, work a couple more day shifts, day off, night shifts. You know, so she was going back n- nights to days, night to days, night to days. And one day she's, she's, she's driving home, these 45-mile-an-hour stretch from, um, from Sioux Falls to, to where we lived, and uh, she had been on day shift, day shift, day shift, day off, night shift, night shift, night shift she fell asleep at the wheel on the way home like her body was just so screwed up uh, from switching back to days nights and she falls asleep at the wheel she drifts into the left lane of the you know the oncoming lane of traffic and winds up thank god in this giant ditch full of reeds like she wakes up after the car is stopped that's how gently she stopped and it's just lonely county highway and I get this call early in the morning that I have to go pick up my wife because she fell asleep at the wheel and she completely unhurt not hurt at all the car had cosmetic damage on it but we're driving home and we're going through the motions of our day the next day and we just can't shake how scary it was Like she, she can't stop playing in her mind what could have happened and there's a new husband, and I don't know if I'll ever learn this, but like when your wife is shaken like that, what do you say to make that go away? Oh, honey, that'll never happen again. I don't know that. How am I going to say that's going to take away that fear? I'm going to say to help her. I don't know what to say. So, I said Psalm 46. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, The Lord is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at the swelling of her, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The God of Jacob it's our refuge and strength. I didn't have my Bible on my, on my lap, but I had Psalm 46 in my heart. And so we prayed, and I prayed Psalm 46, and she took a nap. It comes in handy to know some Bible. So I commend to you the discipline of memorizing the Bible so that when life is hard, you have strength of God's Word in your heart. It's just an ordinary grace of God to us. I urge you to be grateful for these ordinary graces of God to us. No matter whether God's grace is messing up our lives or whether it's just the plain and consistent worship with other Christians and reading the Word, this is what transforms His people. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing the holiness and the change that you demand. You call us to repent. You call us to turn from our sins, to put them in the rearview mirror, and to hit the gas. To say no more. Call us to be holy, like you are holy. You call us to have new hearts and be born again, but these are things we cannot do, and so you have provided You have done what we cannot do. You have supplied the holiness that you demand, and for this we give you our thanks and praise. As we come to share in communion, we ask that we would have an eye for your grace in these things and continue to be transformed by that grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so this bread before us on the table the cup that's next to it. This is also a picture of God's grace to us in Jesus. Specifically, it's a picture of what grace costs. The bread as the body of Christ and the cup as the blood of Christ is a reminder of the price of our salvation. This was a price that Christ was willing to pay. He was glad to pay it. The Father did not twist Jesus' arm. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him. The joy of being at the Father's right hand having rescued people from every tribe and tongue and nation to enjoy fellowship with the Father forever. This is a remembrance of Jesus A remembrance of belonging to Christ and belonging to His people because of what He did for us on the cross. So, as as, as you're going to be invited to share these things, know that these are things for believers. This is a good thing to do if you're a believer. Uh, If you're not a believer, it's a good thing to simply wait and talk to someone about your relationship with God. But if you're here and you're not a believer you can still come forward and be prayed for we do want to serve you that way I'll be at the front here with uh, Brandon to serve you this is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ broken and poured out for his people and so we invite you to come and do this in remembrance of him when you're ready Listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.